I was looking out to the world. And so living next to the airport was kind of this always my head in the clouds in, in a way type of thing. Because I saw planes come and go. And so I was like, you know, what? I'm going to be on the next plane out of here when I have the opportunity just to see the world for myself. That was my guest today, Niselo Berry, and he did get on some of those planes and see the world. And those experiences have made justice and equity at the core of his work on healthy buildings. Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change Environmental Justice Podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Benkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. We appreciate your continued support more than you know. For new listeners, we are here every other Wednesday speaking to leaders in the environmental justice field. We want you all to be a part of this, so reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram and let us know what you think of the podcast and the people or topics that you'd like to hear more about. And of course, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. As I mentioned, I am talking to fellow Niselo Berry, a health impact researcher for Healthy Building Network. Niselo and I discussed the hidden toxics lurking in buildings, what sustainable construction looks like, his work in Africa and how it impacted him, and of course, we had to talk some sports. Enjoy. I am super happy to be joined by Nasalo Barry. Nasalo, how are you doing today? I'm chilling, man. Really good outside uh, Portland here in Oregon's pretty decent right now, uh, and I don't think it's raining right now at the moment. I'm inside, so uh, but the last few weeks have been kind of pouring. So um, I like the rain. So I'm kind of disappointed that it's not raining actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I drove home in a in a snowstorm yesterday from west of where I live, and uh, I'm the same. I'm strange in that I like the bad weather. There's something about it that that does something to the mood. Well, speaking of speaking of place, let's let's go way back to the beginning. So you're not originally from Portland. You grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. So tell me about your upbringing and how you think it shaped yeah, you. Yeah, great question. Um, my parents, or my mother specifically, was in the military, so I did a lot of moving around. Um, one of the other senior fellows, Lariah, uh, she had a similar experience in her podcast talking about that. Um, so for me, um, I kind of connected with that as well. So for me, moving around, seeing a different, a bunch of different places, living with a bunch of different family, uh, extended family in particular. Uh, but we settled in St. Louis around 2000s. Uh, my mom got out of the military after she had my brother in the late 90s. Um, she took a job as a flight attendant. And so we kind of settled down there as kind of being like our home base. Uh, so growing up in St. Louis was a really, really unique situation for me, a really fun time, kind of growing up uh, African-American middle class family. Um, and so for us, uh, it was really important about just kind of experience different things growing up. Uh, I was in Boy Scouts, became an Eagle Scout, went to public school, went to private school, had a chance to to be part of different little organizations growing up throughout the community. And so for me, St. Louis is really kind of the, the, the foundation for who I am today. A lot of my great friends still live there today. I uh, fell in love with sports there, too. Um, and so for me, St. Louis has a special place in my heart. But really, you know, when I became 18, I felt like I just kind of outgrew the place because in that in, in a way it is kind of small. And so once you kind of do everything there, um, I was looking out to the world. And so living next to the airport was kind of this always my head in the clouds in, in a way type of thing. Cause I saw <laughs> planes come and go. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to be on the next plane out of here when I have the opportunity just to see the world for myself. 
I want to hear more about Eagle Scouts. Was this something that uh, was this something that was part of your family? Did other people go through this, and and did it open your eyes at all to to the environment and, and nature? Yeah, my father he was in he was in uh, Boy Scouts when he was growing up, but he had a bad train accident when he was little, and he lost his legs, and so now he's permanently disabled. But uh, for him, being part of just kind of that that environment, and at the time it was kind of just young boys growing up together. So for me, uh, Boy Scouts was a way to just experience the space around me in my community, but also. To to his nature. So camping was a big part of that. So having the chance to go into different camping reservations, um, explore the campsites, uh, keeping them clean, of course, but also respecting the space and the nature around you. And also having understanding of kind of like animals and, and environment and the ecosystem too. Also while learning different skills. Like, for example, I remember through Boy Scouts, I had a chance to ride a horse. I don't think I would have ever done that if it would have been out for Boy Scouts or something like that, right? Starting a fire, surviving, uh, putting tents together. Um, and for me, Eagle Scout is just the highest rank of that too. And so um, that was just an opportunity for me to grow outside of myself, but also challenge myself and, and also do with some of my great friends. They recently just had, I think the Eagle Scout organization um, just had their 50th anniversary. And so I had a chance in a book to talk about my experience. I got a book back from that. And one thing that was unique about kind of where I grew up is that all my closest friends, like three of my closest friends, all black, all Eagle Scouts, which is really unique for that scenario and that situation at the time in St. Louis. So thank you, my troop, uh, Troop 531 and, and the leaders at the time to help me shape that. And also my friends was an incredibly invaluable experience. I still talk about to this, to this day that people ask about on my resume, you know, when I bring it up or when I talk about it. That's so cool. And I think I mistakenly called it Eagle Scout. So it's Boy Scouts, but Eagle Scout is something that you reach uh, at a yeah, certain it's, it's the it's the highest rank in Boy Scouts. So it's like through all kind of your merit badge collection, camping, uh, being in leadership positions, but also kind of culminating in an Eagle Scout project. And so that project is then kind of encapsulate, encapsulate all the work that you've done over kind of the period of your scouting career. And then you do that project, you get it approved, then you talk about certain things. And so you have to all do that before you're 18, like when you age out. And so uh, I was able to do that, got my Eagle Scout, and then graduated high school, and then you know went on to college and so on and so forth. I promise I'll move on from this, but I'm fascinated. Yeah, sure, what, sure, was your, yeah. what was your project? That I have yeah, to it was, uh, I worked at, um, so we have a, there's an Eagle Bird Sanctuary in Missouri. And so they do a bunch of different projects with scouting, scouts and stuff like that. So I chose a project uh, related to honeysuckle kind of extermination. Honeysuckle in, in Missouri at the time is an invasive species. So it sucks up the nutrients of local kind of ecology and wildlife in, in the area. And it makes it hard for other animal like deer to kind of eat the native plants that are responsible for it. And they can't eat it fast enough, than, faster than it grows. And so honeysuckle then this sucks the nutrients out of all local plant life. And so for me, you know, I took the... I have this weird kind of masochistic thing where I got to take the do the hardest thing to challenge myself. <laughs> and we'll talk about that later, I guess, when it comes to sports and stuff like that. So I said, uh, they said, hey, we have this problem with honeysuckle. Can you help us get rid of it? I said, no problem. So I got a bunch of pals together. My friends and I, part people in my troop, troop mates, we went together and started pulling the honeysuckle out, putting them on the pla- uh, pallet so that they, they can be exterminated, taken to another place and exterminated or burned, whatever the case may be. Um, so we pulled all those out. And after that, they came back. I think there was another project that kind of ran concurrently with mine, and that was replaced with other more natural life species, plant life species that were able to be then eaten and maintained by the local plant life and, and animal life there too. Um, another one of my friends built the bird cage at the bird sanctuary. So we have a lot of people that kind of just like involve ourselves within that space. And so super thankful to that organization and the people there at the bird sanctuary and, and really thankful for the opportunity too. I think I have like a plaque somewhere on a tree over there, but I haven't been back in so long that I haven't really like confirmed or anything like that too, but a really unique experience for that. Yeah, that's so cool. Thanks so much for sharing that. And it sounds like there is a lot of 
a lot of uh, uh, engagement with the environment and, and nature here. But this kind of leads into my next question is where did kind of science and the environment come into play during those early years? Yeah, like, in, I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if this was a St. Louis thing, but in the summer, this is back when West Nile virus was like a huge thing, right? And so they used to have these trucks that used to go around spraying these chemicals throughout the neighborhoods. And I think it was to help maintain mosquito birth and help decline and help prevent that from happening. But it oh, it smells so nasty all the time. You knew when they were coming out. You didn't want to be outside with your friends when the vehicle come out. And the vehicle didn't care. They would just drive by. You probably wave at them not thinking twice about it because the same person doing the, the work every single day. But it had this really bad smell to it. And so I always thought about, like, what does that, like, that can't be good for, you know, people coming inside. I know my parents would tell me to come inside when that person would come outside. Um, and so I had this weird kind of this, this weird kind of relationship with things like that happening in our, in our neighborhood and thinking about these type of things. But the most I, I was growing up, I knew about mold. Obviously, I knew about lead and water, those type of things. Um, but for me, that was kind of where that, that fascination with the environment and the things came apart. My family's always been into respecting the where you where you go, where you come from, and leaving places better than where you found them, which also happens to be a, a scout slogan, too, as well, when we're talking about the environment as well. And so those type of things kind of just reinform kind of personal behaviors of mine. And when I think about the world, animals, and the environment around us when it comes to t- caring about these things, that then extended through my education and then ultimately into where we are now when we talk about kind of environmental justice and housing and, and, and other sort and also toxic materials too. Um, so that's kind of where all those foundations, things, the initial curiosity came into play, but then, you know, uh, formalized with, you know, formal education, practice, and also experiences and talking to people and so on and so forth. Yeah, and you've been able to take these these early values and, and make a career out of it, which is very cool. And before we get to that, which we're going to, I want to know what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity up to this point? Yeah, it's a it's a big one. And, and I think that it kind of leads into the question we talk about uh, some of the work I did in Africa. Um, and for me, that's the biggest moment. I had an opportunity when I was in college, undergraduate at Drexel University in, in Philadelphia, to travel to the Gambia, Western Africa, very small country in, in, in Africa. Um, and so I had an opportunity to work as a kind of biomedical engineer and in, in a, pro, a program there through through Drexel University. And for me, you know, as an as an African-American person growing up in 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 America, obviously, um, there's you have the understanding of kind of like think about it like point Z, which is obviously being in America. So obviously knowing that I'm an American here at this point, but point A being what is the beginning point of that? We know it's historically Africa, but we but we don't have any kind of like formal connection to that as as black people here, unless you kind of trace your lineage back through slavery and so on and so forth. And so for me, having the opportunity to really go back to Africa and reconnect with kind of that part, knowing that not necessarily specifically knowing what maybe what tribe or what kind of country that I an emanate from my family came from, um, but really just having this this influence of understanding of some part of me feels connected to this continent in a certain way. And that would be one thing that, you know, for anybody who who goes back to a place that they know that their family comes from, uh, but especially a black person going back to the continent. I think having that opportunity to really immerse yourself in the culture and the people around you is was the biggest shape shifting thing. I had a person tell me and said, hey, Nisela, you look I can show you a picture. You look just like one of my cousins here. Right. And that's me. I've that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Right. I've never I never really got that in the United States. Um, but having somebody saying that to me was just like this opportunity. Like you have people here that there is some lineage here of you that, you know, comes from this place here. And that to me is the biggest, I think, one of the biggest shape shifting opportunities for myself. I turned 21 there. So it was a coming of age thing for me personally to experience that in Africa. Um, and so that has to me is the ultimately the biggest 
uh, shapeshifter when it comes to my identity and thinking about Africa and talking about it and supporting the continent even to this day. That's so cool. And I know at the, at the time you were working at the intersection of engineering, public health, and environmental justice while you were down there. So can you tell us about the actual work while you were there and any challenges working in a different country and also any victories, any good things that, that came of the work? Yeah, a lot of the work involved, I worked with a group called Power of Gambia, and they're a, uh, a solar kind of uh, working group, and they work with kind of with renewable energies. And so they have a claim that they invested in down there. Um, where they have solar energy related to the clinic. Cause a lot of the time when it comes to kind of uh, petrol fuel sources, they're unreliable, they're hard to get. Um, and at the hospital, they can go out at any time. And so in the hospital, obviously you need functioning things in order to help with kind of the patients and, and different things at, in the moment. So um, so for me, they have these things called solar suitcases. And these are kind of like a, like a smaller miniature version of solar power systems where you can then connect them to different clinics. And so I had the opportunity with me and another another woman named uh, Mary. She was a journalist, but also did some nursing stuff down there, too. Um, and so we traveled throughout these different clinics here and installed these solar suitcases in these uh, different clinics and throughout all different parts of Gambia, traveled the whole the whole country there. And for that for that reason, there were people, doctors delivering children with kind of think about like an old Nokia phone with a flashlight in their mouth, delivering the child, you know, in the dark. Right. And so these are kind of things that where they have the opportunity now to have the solar system where if they child did come at, you know, a, a inconvenient time like children do especially when they're being born obviously um they had opportunities now to have the adequate equipment the lighting sources to have say hey we can deliver this child in a safe environment where we can then have the right tools to do what we have to do but also if we have to escalate the issue to another clinic we have the ability to make that communication to say hey we need to go to the bigger clinic in a closer neighborhood or closer community so we can give the the children what they need so it was a lot of that work on that developing those type of things and also just kind of fixing you know equipment throughout these different hospitals a lot of people would ask me to do certain things for them so leaving things again better than what I found them but also investing in these clinics for long term so that they can have things that they need because it is hard to get these places like if you don't have the proper 4x4 vehicle a lot of these places are hard to get to a lot of people use donkey cart which is very you know when you're talking about an emergency just not economical and not viable um, or people use transportation which is hard to get to as well and then after that significant walking obviously because the distances are just so vast on the continent especially in Gambia too even as a small place a small country um, so that's what much of my work centered around that. I had a host hospital, but also had an opportunity to travel to different parts of the country, especially during my holidays and stuff like that, too. So, um, But again, very, very important. Um, the victories part of that word, having just the opportunity to meet different people, uh, to get some of this equipment up. A lot of this equipment was, is hand-me-down equipment, so things that hospitals don't need anymore, they pass to the clinic. Um, and a lot of times they're broken. They're not very viable, so I have to fix them. Um, and then had train that information to the other people that are the residents that are there so they know how to fix it when I'm gone. Um, and so those are the type of things that I think for me are ultimately the most frustrating thing because, you know, if you want to, people, you want to see people succeed, you give them the best chance to. That's what I think that's what a, a great coach always told me. So, you know, when you're giving uh, bad equipment to people to mean that you don't really see them, you don't want to see them succeed. It's just something that you know how no longer have to pay for or maintain. So you're passing that along to somebody else to deal with that, which to me, I think is completely unfair if you're talking about kind of like helping people and giving people the best opportunity to be kind of successful in their own environment. So that's the biggest challenge. But, you know, everybody else around that knows kind of their situation and they're constantly working to better their situation, which is always to me the the utmost kind of respect I have for the group and the people that work in those environments in those places. And maybe this is hard to answer, but I'm wondering what how you've carried that forward, that feeling that you had of, of having been there and having met people uh, and, and that sense of place. How how is that? How have you carried that forward? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, when I got there as a 20-year-old initially, there's this kind of feeling like, um, and what I'm, the stuff am I doing, is it impactful enough? There was a moment in, in, in when I was working there where I was walking to kind of my office and you see some, there was somebody on a morgue, they were covered up, and, I mean, on a gurney, they were covered up, deceased, and they would be taken to the morgue. And so for me, that's a real moment of kind of, of understand of really understanding that you know this is people's lives are on the line here like and the work that i'm doing has impact on people's lives and so that responsibility weighed on me in a way where it didn't feel like a, a burden or something that you would fall but it felt like a responsibility in a moment of opportunity to to be your best version of yourself through the culmination of work and training that you got up to this this very moment here and so I took that kind of that 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 motivation and carried that with me, but also with that, but also with the support of the people in the clinic who trusted I knew that I knew what I was doing there, right? That would in the middle of the night call me to come fix the oxygen concentrator for somebody that was you know that needed it, um, that would come and say, hey, great job on this, great job on this, hey, Nasella, we need your we need you to go out to this clinic in this part of of the Gambia, and so I took that 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 motivation and that courage and that support, and that's something that's been stuck with me throughout this moment in time, everywhere I've gone. And it's always this kind of this this idea that wherever where I am in that moment, I'm supposed to be there because the work that I put in proved that I'm supposed to be there. I had a moment in college. I never forget this. It was kind of like um, I was in a lecture hall, giant lecture hall. And we were talking about, you know, electronic stuff about the teachers laying out their expectations and, and what to expect from you. And I remember coming out of the lecture hall, just got the college, like 18 or so. And I felt like at the moment in time, the stage was too bright for me, like metaphorically speaking, like, I don't know if I can handle this. I remember I called my mom from the laundry room at Drexel's like, you know what, I'm a transfer. I'm going to get into something else. Like in that moment, I really wanted to run away from that thing. And my mom said something that was just the, the simplest thing. But she said, Nasele, you know, where you are? I'm like, I'm at school. They said the job of the teachers there is also to teach you those things, too. Right. And I said, you know what, that makes a ton of sense. So that all that anxiety I had pent up about, I, I should know these things already, would, didn't make any sense in that moment because I'm getting to a place where they're supposed to teach me how to, how to put these uh, connections together, how to solder this, how to do this, what is a capacitor, what is that, whatever. And I said, you know what, okay, I'll do that. And from then on, I take in the moment like when I'm jumping into something new. This is the first moment where I'm going to be the least kind of knowledgeable in the situation. And then you build upon that day each and every single day. Doesn't mean they're not going to be harder days later. But this is the moment in time where you're going to just be the most lack of you're going to have the most lack of knowledge in the moment. And then you can build upon that moving forward. And so I've always kind of taken that mindset. And then really from there, just jumping in things with both feet and then figure them out as you go. And I think with the support of others in your team and people around you, too. Those things are so common among uh, successful people, I think. Both uh, learning humility, I think, is really important. But also, there, there's something, and I see it with people in this program all the time, is people who are really hard on themselves, <laughs> you know, just feel like you should know all these things. Um, but learning to rely on others is so important. So I want to fast forward to your work that you're doing now, um, which EHN.org is, is very familiar with because we've we've uh, worked with uh, worked with you folks a little bit. So you are at the Healthy Building Network, and I don't think most people think of buildings when they think of toxic chemicals. So first off, what are the concerns there and how do these materials impact people's health? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. Um, for me, think about it like this. I want everybody who's who listening to the podcast, think about how much time you spend within the building, whether it's your home, whether it's a place of worship, whether it's your work, 
whether it's a school, right? Think about what that really means and, and compare this to the time you spend outside, right? I'm not talking about like cracking a window from inside your home, but really spending time outside. I think people would be hard pressed to think that they spend a lot of their time inside taking in kind of all the, the, the fumes and the materials that they build from either from furniture or from uh, carpet or for whatever the case may be, or from maybe paint that they maybe they painted a new room in their home or something like that. Um, and so when it comes to toxic materials, we're talking about things that, you know, manufacturers put it into their, their products to make them more viable, to last longer on the shelves. But oftentimes these things have detriments on kind of our development as human beings, rather it's kind of uh, things related to carcinogens, uh, things related to kind of developmental toxicants for individuals who are pregnant. Um, or things that just don't go away, which you call PBTs, persistent biocumulative, uh, biocumulative toxicants, things that just don't go away. They're mad annoying, trust me, right? <laughs> and so when we talk about these these chemicals and the impact of these, these are something that if I go into a room for like an hour or so and then leave, okay, and I never go back in the room, that's one thing. But we're sleeping in these, we're staying in these, we're building our lives in these. And so that's where kind of the, the systems of these chemicals begin to infiltrate ourselves in, in our body. And then our body begins to kind of be impacted on these in a, in a way where we see more cases of higher asthma in poor housing, right? We see higher incidence of carcinogens in people who work in, in PVC uh, locations or PVC factories, right? We see these things where individuals are becoming contracted with these diseases at a higher rate. Right. Where it just doesn't make sense compared to the rest of the population. Right. And then you start looking at kind of the 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 digest of materials when it comes to building homes and places that have affordable housing are built with legacy systems, poor materials that that need to be replaced, that have been replaced compared to maybe your suburban home that has the the most green places is the most green uh, kind of facility or or home management, whatever you want to say, that has just a much more healthy kind of one feng shui to it, but also scientifically a lot healthier compared to the individuals who live in the community housing that you might see in more urban areas. Um, so think about think about the impact of that and think about kind of what that means for you long term, what that means for your kids and what that means kind of for individuals who might find themselves kind of immunocompromised, but also develop conditions you think that would just don't make quite much sense when you're compared to either uh, your cohort, the people who live next to you or the people who live in different communities that you see just lower instances of these type of things like asthma, like the development of cancer in particular. So um, that's kind of where those those kind of two fields intersect. It's one of the type of things that if you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to find it. You're going to think it's just a home I'm coming into. But people have an idea when they see these type of things about I don't feel safe in this home. This home feels kind of like a kind of maybe like a prison. I don't feel healthy in this place. I want to get out of this place. Um, we haven't have this intuition as human beings. So I think it's very interesting to to think about too when it comes to kind of the place that we live and, and where we you know make our lives and so on and so forth i think the bringing up the idea that low-income housing is often more saddled with these things is really important because when i talk to people about the work that we do on toxic chemicals is okay yes it's bad you're exposed to something that could harm you it's bad but then you think about the downstream impact so you have a family who's already low income now is saddled with health problems and their children are. So is their health care available? They probably don't have adequate access to health care or aren't offered from their jobs if they're low income. So it's this cycle, you know, and, and then the kids are growing up in an environment that makes them sick more and then they stay in low income housing and the cycle continues. So I think it's important to think about these kind of generational impacts and it's just kind of a system keeping the foot on the throat of, of, of certain certain groups of people. 
Um, so I think that work, the work that you're doing is very important. And where does kind of healthy building network fit into this? Is, is it just on kind of the advocacy of safer materials and, and trying to get these bad actors out of building materials? Yeah, as a we could, we kind of build ourselves as a resource organization. And that's who we are. So a lot of the work that we're doing, we we put together, we look into, we research. So we're looking at a bunch of safety data sheets, and environmental product declarations. What are in these chemicals? How do we get rid of them? But also how we manage them too. Uh, another part of our work is kind of managing our Ferro's dead database, which is a database full of different chemicals that come together from um, different lists and regulatory lists throughout the world. So we have lists from Japan, we have lists from America, we have lists from Canada, um, Europe that list where these kind of chemicals fall on these different registrars and what they mean for kind of the, the human impact, but also environmental impact too, whether you're talking about ozone depletion in particular um, as well, but also uh, kind of where these chemicals fall among kind of the, the, the toxic spaces and, and, and kind of how do we get the information out to people so they know architects know, building owners know, developers know, hey, I'm putting this type of paint that has these type of chemicals in it. Just so you know, these chemicals are associated with these type of hazards. So you got to make better decisions here, right? And also part of our work is is creating these kind of this product guidance or these hazard spectra that shows you kind of ranking these things from like a stoplight system, like saying, hey, green has the, the least toxics in it, where red is kind of the worst type of thing. You want to avoid these type of things. And really, you know, a lot of our guidance is kind of staying out of this kind of orange zone and moving away from the red and making the the, the easy wins and the easy victories, so to speak, when it comes to kind of developing uh, your home and putting kind of the, 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 the best things in your home for the right reason, so to speak. So um, that's where we fall on it. We're a small organization, so we have to know our limitations. So when it comes to the advocacy side, Brian, of it, a lot of it is working with groups like Coming Clean, for example, health organizations like that who have the kind of the, the bandwidth to kind of do the more kind of vocal stuff or working with kind of more grassroots things related to maybe like the NAACP. They have a great uh, CESBS, uh, Sustainable Equity and the sustainable building sector. That's the kind of their side organization related to building. So working groups like that, when it comes to the advocacy side of it, to help kind of push that message out helps with kind of our work so that we're not overextending ourselves too. Because um, I think as researchers, I think that one thing we have to kind of do is, is focus on our thing, but find the ways where we can work with other people in a team to impact the space more kind of effectively. And are there examples of whether it's companies, building practices, projects that you're seeing that are doing this construction in a healthy, sustainable way? Yeah, there's two that come into mind. We worked with a group called Sarah Architects. I believe they were started in Portland, but they have offices in California. It was a demonstration project that we worked with them about a new project they're building in California for uh, individuals who are low-income housing Um and for them, they're really I really want to champion them as an organization because they care about healthy materials and building them and making that part of their mission there, too. So they came to us. We talked about the project and said, hey, we're building these projects with these so many units here. What are the ways that we can improve this project to make sure we can make it the healthiest as possible, as viable, whether the kind of our constraints, our budget, so on and so forth. So we had the opportunity to go back and forth with them. And so my colleagues, Rebecca Stam and, and Roberto Kenlock, we did a great job at kind of telling them, it's OK, this is a victory. This is a point here. You can do choose better paint here. What about the drywall here? What about the carpet here? Um, making just better decisions throughout that. So people don't have to then think about that because you mentioned that earlier, Brian, people saddled with all these issues here. And I think part of our work is kind of take that burden off of them so they can focus on the things within their lives rather than thinking about, hey, can you replace these pipes? Can you replace this jar? Well, can you replace this paint for me? Like those things should already be taken to care for if you care about the people early on. That's something that people should not have to worry about. They should be trusting that coming into a home, they're getting a safe product, like almost like ordering some food. They're getting a safe, healthy, you know, dish that they're getting here as a maintained with this. It has good, you know, uh, products in it. 
um, ingredients in it, so to speak. And the same thing should be with your home, too. When you're coming into your house, your space, those things should also be healthy, too. I don't care if the person is low income. I don't care if the person is a veteran. That, that has no impact on those type of things in comparison when we're talking about individuals who are higher income, who are more privileged, right? Those things should be the same for both people. And so that group is a great group that gets that. Uh, we worked with them previously. We do a bunch of webinars with them. And so that's something that they, they care about, too, as well. Another group is United Renters for Justice, a community grassroots organization based in Minnesota. And they did a great job at working with different groups and helping getting people away from abusive uh, landlords. And doing so, they take over the kind of the 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 uh, the tenant uh, the take over the the apartment complex. And in doing so, they have the opportunity now to redefine what's important to us. What are the things that matter to us when we're building these apartment complexes out, right? So a lot of it is retroactive work. We're going to get these old materials out that didn't replace. We're getting this old paint out they didn't replace. We're getting this old drywall out they didn't replace. So working with kind of the local banks and getting the loans that they need, but also working with us too to make sure to say, hey, if you're going to replant your place, think about this paint that you should be using because this paint doesn't have X, Y, and Z in it, right? To help with kind of long-term impacts we're talking about. We're talking about uh, furniture. Look for furniture that doesn't have halogenated flame retardants in it right so working with a group like that who's taking the opportunity to say hey we're at the foundation we need to start building foundation properly so how do we who do we reach out to who do we work with so those are two groups that i believe that you know when they're talking about the foundation they know kind of who to get involved early with and so when it comes to healthy materials start early it is a lot easier and a lot cheaper for you in the long run to put this stuff in at the beginning rather than try to come come back in later or try to write uh, redefine processes later where you kind of have this systematic approach to something already it is a lot harder to to redefine behavior that you learn especially bad habits rather than starting a good habit and building upon good habits moving forward that's a lot more and that's i think that's a lot more fundamentally viable for your organization moving forward, but also for the people who occupy your space that you build moving forward too as well. So start with good habits early, build on good habits later, and maintain those in the present. That's what helps impact healthy materials, you know, on a systematic level. It's a great point. I mean, the most obvious example of that is lead paint, right? I mean, we, we use lead paint for years and to try to get rid of it in houses now creates, sometimes creates more problems because you're just kicking up dust. Uh, so that, that, that point's well taken. So in your Agents of Change essay, you talked about um, inadequate affordable housing in the U.S. and ways to, to do it better. So you've talked about the links between toxics in the home and low-income housing. But this essay was more about just being able to afford a home. I mean, you talked a little bit about healthy materials, but it was more about just having homes that are affordable and something you can be proud of. Can you explain why this, too, is a health issue and how this fits into your healthy, healthy buildings work? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mentioned kind of at the end of that, starting with kind of the, the fundamentals and, and the foundation, which I kind of ended my essay with kind of that point, too, as well. And and the point is that is that when we're talking about healthy materials. Think about it like this. It's a it's it's a part of the umbrella that you go way down in the chain, but it's not the, the biggest part that covers the entire kind of encapsulation of affordable housing. Like for me, you have to begin with the foundation part of it, which is affordable housing and, and well and starting with those those positive systematic um, impacts. If you cannot do that, then when we get to healthy materials, you're just not going to have the time or the space or the opportunity to say, hey, we need to get this lead paint out of here. Right. The lead paint being in, in those in those homes, that is a systematic thing that people did way back when that people now have to live with today till today. So getting those out and it's going to cost even more money. It's going to be a retroactive issue that builds up over time. Like 
And so we talk about groups like NYCHA, for example, who I was critical of in the essay. It's not that because people in there don't care about that. They don't have the opportunity or the space to care about these type of things because they're they don't have a lot of individuals who are committed as far as just kind of having the 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 power the employee power to do what they have to do, but it becomes an increasingly expensive issue when your organization is lacking the funding either from state or from a federal sense to make the change that you need required, right? It's a lot more, it's a lot easier to have just a plot of land and build up and have everything that's just clean and green and so on and so forth, rather than having these old decrepit buildings, tearing them down, building them back up, doing this, doing that, getting construction in there. It all becomes a logistical nightmare because these are in urban areas with surrounding businesses and you have to get permits and it becomes just a thing where, where at this point, why are we even talking about healthy materials at this point? There are so many other issues that linger throughout this place that healthy materials is not even like you just listen to me like like five minutes in like a community hearing just because you have to you know do uh, have the time or whatever the case may be. So so when it comes to healthy materials, you know I like to advocate for a solution that when it becomes really sensible and viable to do so. Just saying, hey, we need to do these things. That's great. Right. But you have to understand the context of what you're asking people to do or what you're asking for folks. Right. If people get to a moment, and say, hey, we can we can talk about health materials now like United Renters for Justice. Right. That's a great opportunity to talk about that moment after they secure the new apartments, after they secured, after they move away from the landlords, after they secure the funding, rather than trying to talk to them as they're going through this kind of this logist, uh, this kind of legislative nightmare to try and beat the landlord. The, uh, the abusive landlord from, you know, getting uh, separating them from their the current apartment complexes. Right. So you have to have this opportunity, understanding when to do these things and get to people early, but be smart about it and recognize kind of what's on their plate and not just pile more stuff on there. Because if you're piling a bunch of solutions that aren't that aren't that people cannot hold together, it's all just going to fall apart. And we've seen that before in a bunch of different spaces where people try to do too much. You have to do enough in the moment and be forceful in those moments to then push things forward at the next moment. If that makes sense, right? It does make sense. And your point about uh, almost making it uh, for for people who are doing the building and making those decisions, making it an economic win for them. You're not going to have to go in and redo things and constantly be changing things. Uh, Do it right from the beginning and then you save money in the long run. Unfortunately, we don't we don't often think like that uh, or or people that are making decisions don't. So before I, I switch gears a little bit and get into some fun stuff, I'd like to ask folks, some of this work can be can be heavy, although it sounds like you, you guys have had some some significant victories along the way. But what makes you optimistic in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, the, the big part of it is that I'm I'm meeting different people every day that 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 are that one want to have the conversation about healthy materials, which is important in anything. But are saying, hey, let's do a project together. Let's do these things together. So they're reaching out to us or to other organizations about healthy materials they want to know more about them and we're maintaining a relationship in, in moments like that so we can build upon kind of a new culture of healthy materials. That's what makes me the most optimistic about it today. I think that a lot of kind of in, in having a being a small organization that we are as HBN, we have a lot of influence in a lot of different spaces from just either connections and people knowing us. And so we're we get constantly invited to talk about things to do about to do these things. But I think something that we're now asking people to is that if you're going to ask to come do these things. What are you being committed to after this conference, right? Don't just take this this weekend here in June or July just to have us here, but let's build upon something moving forward. You know, how are you building these practices into your architecture firm? How are you building these things into local legislation if you're part of kind of like statewide legislation when it comes to housing? 
these things are things that people are excited to do and, and we brainstorm about and we have these conversations with them about. So I think for me, that's the most optimistic part of, about this. And I think people are getting to the moment where we're understanding that, that you know, as the dawdling can't continue to go on because that means that the people who are most saddled with this, as you mentioned, Brian, continue to still be in that situation. We don't have time to dawdle this. We know what the issues are. We know what the problems are. It is now to start building things, you know, correctly moving forward and course correcting kind of that work that we, that was done previous before us, before we jumped into these positions, uh, positions till today. So a lot of that is I think for me where my optimism lies in this kind of work and I'm really excited about the the people that I've met and the people that I continue to meet that are doing this work and it seems like you're just meeting you know different people in different spaces and different kind of you know you know positions that you don't have the influence to say hey you know what we're going to start doing this now moving forward and to me that's a big victory because that's going to mean something to that family that moves into that development in a two years from now right and that's going to mean something to you know that generation of family and so on and so forth so in that community so to speak so um, that's to me is where my I think my optimism lies the most. That's excellent. And uh, I mean, those kind of collaborations in my work, too, when you start realizing that a lot of people are rowing in the same direction and you can kind of combine your power is it really is a bright spot in a lot of this environmental work. So you mentioned earlier um, taking the hardest path and being a masochist and maybe in sports. Well, I'm a Detroit Lions fan, so I I think I maybe win the the, the, the masochism on that front. But I want to talk about sports. We had a chance in person to talk about this, and I know we're both sports fans. So what, what role do they play in your life and who are some of your must-see teams? Yeah, absolutely. I think sports for me is a, a big part of kind of what I think about today. Um, I I watch less kind of the sport debate shows just because I think they're so dramatic and really corny at times. <laughs> but but I'm always down to have a sports conversation with people that I work with and things like that. But for me, sports is a, has been a big part of kind of my development as a person. I think it helps me kind of understand this this understanding of you know when you make a decision, you have to understand a few things associated with that. One, you have to make the choice. So kind of the courage and bravery to do so. The second part is understanding sacrifice, and the other part is consequence. So those th- those three type of things, I think I, I learned that from playing sports and understanding that these things all play a role in the space here, especially in, in a team sport, right? There's going to be people next to you. You don't know how hard in the offseason they're working to do their, their, their game, right? But if they put on that same jersey as you, they're your teammate in this moment, and you got to live whatever happens in that moment. Whether you make this a mistake, whether they make a mistake, it's... It, it is what it is, but you have to live with that, and that's something that you accept when you put that jersey on, right? So that's the decision you have to make. And I think for me, understanding consequence and sacrifice, I think about those things when I make decisions today, even kind of in my in my work, but also kind of in, in my personal life too as well. And I think it helps me understand that, you know, anything worth having, you have to make a certain sacrifice for it. Um, and I think that when we talk about certain things and we, when we discuss things maybe on a more kind of political and societal level, I think we the 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 the, the impediments that we run into are are individuals unable to understand that they they have to make the sacrifice or they don't want to make a sacrifice because they want to have it all. And you really can't have it all. If you want to see the changes that you want to see as a society, we're going to have to make a sacrifice on this particular issue. It's going to be a certain consequence that you might get a certain backlash from your group or constituents. But these are some things that you have to do. We've seen that when when we talk about kind of January 6th and, and, and the attack on the Capitol. You saw the Republicans who said, hey, I think we should have a committee. And you saw the backlash they got from their other constituents on that. Right. So those are type of things where that's the kind of sacrifice and you get frozen out from that. And you might have just killed your own political career because you went against the the grain of everybody else associated with you. Right. And so that's just one example. But that's kind of how we talk about it on the bigger scale. And, And we try to have it all, but you really can't have it all. You have to make a decision. And I think and I think having that helps me understand face disappointment helps me helps me kind of 
understand success and helps me how to build upon the next day too, right? Because that moment doesn't signify everything for you. You also have the opportunity in the next moment to be better than you were in this previous moment. Whether that whether that was a victory or a loss in that current moment, you can still build upon the next one. And so when we talk about kind of like my favorite teams to watch, obviously being for me, I shouldn't say obviously, but I'm a huge Eagles fan. So watching that stuff, obviously tough loss in the Super Bowl. I don't want to talk about it. I blame Rihanna, <laughs> damn it. You know, that, that, that halftime show. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Rihanna was, she was sensational. Even even she was pregnant, she was sensational in that, that halftime show. Um, really, but somebody like Patrick Mahomes is, is must-see TV. Like, if you want to lose to somebody, you want to lose somebody who might be one of the greatest to ever do it. Like, he might be those people like, you know, we talk about great players. He prevented a lot of other great players from winning championships because he was so damn good. That, to me, is incredible. And But also, seems like Andy Reid win it. It takes the pain away less. I did cry. I did. After I was mad because I spent so much money on some food. <laughs> I, my, my People came over. I sent them home. And I think I, I closed my, my door, and I think I just went to sleep. I, don't, I maybe cried. I think I woke up. I saw some tears <laughs> in my pillows, I think. But... The, the 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 point is that but people like that are just people you have to you have to respect people like that there's people who go through it who fought he was having a bad ankle he fought through it and he still was found able to a way to get through it even Jalen Hurts our own quarterback uh bad fumble comes back brings the team back he was going toe-to-toe with him with Patrick Mahomes and and so somebody like that is something you're incredibly proud of as an Eagles fan to see that so for me, it's always going to be the Eagles must see TV, and also I'm petty, so Dallas is must see TV too because they're going to disappoint you when you need them most to do it. They're going to disappoint you too, so they're must see TV too for me as well. So, um, but no, I think that's sports for me is an incredible moment and something that I, I think about even to this day, and I, and I love, of course, the competition of it. There's some competition I think is is very beneficial for your growth. People understand it's not about the person you're facing on the field or wherever you are. That person is a, is a physical manifestation of, of an impediment in that moment because that person is going to change next week when you come to a different type of game, right? So it's not the person that's important, right? It's that moment and how do you overcome that moment? And that's through the preparation, through your teamwork, through the sacrifice, through the consequence, all those decision making. Um, that's what's important in that space. And, and I love that part of sports so much. I do too, and I, I think you put it really well. All the lessons you draw from playing sports and and watching it to a large extent too, and learning from the people that 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 put up all that sacrifice. There's a couple other things I'd add, and maybe they're not as important, but I feel like sports is a real connector for me. Um, I mean, the first time I met you, I mean, we talked about it. I when I when I don't see my uncles, who maybe I disagree with on all kinds of other things, it's something. It's com. It's just common ground. It's something that we connect with. And the other thing is it's it's relatively light. <laughs> like I can listen to podcasts on sports throughout the day and not feel the existential uh, of crises of, of the work that we engage in. So, so I like that about it a lot, too. Awesome. Well, Nasela, this has been a lot of fun. I have a few more questions here, and this is just rapid fire. Three questions where you can just answer with one word or a phrase. So if I could vacation anywhere, it would be. I'd be in a submarine or on a boat traveling the seas for an extended period of time. I would do something like that. Something involving the water. I like that. My first concert was? Uh, My mom took me to, when I was little, Casey and the Sunshine Band. They were on tour somewhere, I think in Virginia, something like that. So I went to one of their concerts. Man, that that is a really good one. If I could have dinner with one person, living or deceased, it would be? Baseball opening days around the corner. Jackie Robinson. Oh, I would love to talk to him. Another great one. Well, Nasela, what is the last book you read for fun? And you don't have to confine yourself to one word or a phrase here. I did The Little Prince. And check this pronunciation out. 
by Antoine de Saint Tejupedi. You see that? I didn't practice. I didn't practice that right before the podcast, everybody. I'm just kidding. I practiced that right before the podcast. I was practicing that in the green room. But no, I think the Little Prince is. Uh, it's essentially just about a, a a pilot who crash lands on the planet and meets his little prince, and they just have a conversation about life and talk about these different things like this. Um, and so. Uh, it's a really interesting journey about kind of just finding your own growth in your own space. Something similar to if you've ever read the collection of short stories, uh, The Jungle Book, uh, by Rudyard Kipling. It's another kind of thing about that where Mowgli's kind of growing through his own his own kind of transition where he comes and meets the jungle. But he gets to a point where Bagheera, the panther, tells him, say, hey, Mowgli, like you're of age, you're of, you're of age now. And the people that you, you know, that we will always love you. But this is not who you are. You have to go be with your people and you have to go kind of experience life on your own and on your own terms. And that's something that I think about a lot, too, especially growing up in from St. Louis. Like you move away from those people that are your best friends and are your childhood friends. And you have to grow and experience the world that the way that, you know, for what's best for you. And that's always a I think that's always a tough intersection to overcome and think about books like that always help me kind of just think about kind of those similarities and, and those tough choices we think about kind of in life today and so on and so forth. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been really great to hear more about your work and your personal story. Uh, Nasalo, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Really excited. All right, that wraps this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nasalo. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to this, all past episodes, and subscribe. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Onelis Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Email our team at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter at the program homepage. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. In two weeks, we will have a special podcast when fellows Alexa White and Dr. Candace Hunter interview Dr. Beverly Wright, founder and executive director of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. It is going to be a good one. Have a great week, folks. <laughs>